Let's, let's pray. Father, um, would you help us to always be aware of our need for your matchless and unique power? God, there are so many times where I commit the error of thinking I can do it on my own, thinking I have it figured out. And Lord, we, we need you. Um, Lord, I pray that we would echo the heart of Paul in Galatians. We would boast in nothing but the cross of Christ, for by it we are crucified to the world and the world to us. So, Lord, I pray that you would, through your word this morning, draw us closer to you with a greater confidence in who you are. And it's in, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Around December, uh, I think it was around December of 2006, there was a small church in uh, the central plateau of Haiti that had their Christmas Eve service, and Christmas was a very special, special service for this church, and that night in particular, it was just one of those nights that you just didn't want the worship to end, um, and being on a, worship, on a Haitian time schedule instead of an American time schedule, I'm sure they went on longer than we would have. Uh, but it was, it was a very special night where they really felt the love of God, the power of God, the presence of God in their worship. And after the service, everyone made their way home. And one couple who was at that service was John John and Chrissy Montpremier. And though they were quite uh, familiar with that area, John John having grown up in that area, they were relatively new in the vocational ministry of their new organization there. And the area they were in was, was steeped in voodoo and voodoo worship. And every single night, the, they would go to bed to the sound of the drums of the voodoo services. And that night, they get home from this worship service just deeply encouraged through the preaching and the worship and the fellowship. And they're laying in bed. And like every night, up to that point, the drums started. And they knew the drums would be going, but they were just discouraged. Like, why does it have to be tonight too? Why couldn't tonight just be silent and let us just have this moment and going to bed with this, this, the, the lingering taste of worship, if you will? And that night, John John said, well, I just need to go talk to him. And so he got up out of bed to go talked to those who were worshiping the spirits, and he tried to get a couple people to come with him who said, are you nuts? Like, that's a great way to die. And it, and it was. John John, confident that the Lord was sending him, confident that the Lord would be with him, went, found one other person to go with him, the voodoo worshipers were thrilled that a pastor would come to their worship service. They said, oh, let us sing a song for you. We're so glad you're here. They were welcoming him in, and he goes, no, I don't want to hear your song. 
Instead, he just told them about John 3.16. He read it for them. He told them what it meant. And then he said, good night. They packed up their drums. They went home. The next night, no drums. And the night after that, no drums. And around, somewhere around the second, third day after, a man walked up to John John, who was one of the witch doctors, and he said, I can't sleep. I need you to tell me about Jesus. That witch doctor came to give his life to Christ, and the drums stopped. I, at the time, was part of the primary sending church for the Mon Premiers, and we were hearing this story unfold in real time that John John shared with them. A witch doctor came to Christ. The drums are done, and we were ecstatic. We were celebrating with the Mon Premiers for what this could mean for their area, that, that voodoo has been, at least for the time, displaced and that the gospel is growing. But we were also challenged by John John's boldness. See, it wasn't a boldness founded in himself. He didn't go there thinking, well, you know, if things get rough, I can handle myself. Pretty trained in zero martial arts. He went there with the boldness that he's a child of God doing the work of God. And it was a boldness that it's not me who's going to stop this spiritual darkness, but it is the, the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the God of heaven who will stop this darkness. It was a boldness firmly fixed in the reality of what Christ had done for him and what Christ had called him to. And John John went with a confidence that we uniquely have as Christians. I'm a child of God called to the work of God. We serve a mighty God, and his might, he uses his might for his worship and for our good. And as we get ready to read the text, I want that phrase ringing in your minds, that we call on and worship a mighty God, and he uses his might for his worship and for our good. So we're in Judges 7. We're picking up, Gideon's just been called to this work against the Midianites. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east all gather together every spring. They just wipe out all the crops of the Israelites. They ravage the land, leaving them with next to nothing or nothing at all for them to eke out an existence with. They're, they've been terrorized for seven years. Now the eighth year, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east are encamped, ready to come in. Their camels are without number. They're like locusts in number, getting ready to descend. God has assured Gideon that this is the last, that there will be no more of this, that he will deliver Midian into the hands of, of Gideon and his army. So let's, let's read now in verse 7. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying that whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. 
Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. And he brought the people to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouth was 300. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let the, the others go every man to his home so that the people took provisions in their hands and with trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel Every man to his tent, but retained three, the 300 men in the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down uh, to the camp with Purah, your servant, uh, if you're afraid, then go down with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down to the, against the camp. And he, he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were at the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels without number, <clears throat> as the sand of the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down and the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand the Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into our hand. And he divided them 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of them and empty jars with torches inside. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And when, <clears throat> when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, all who are with me blow the trumpets. And on every side of the camp shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and a hundred men who were with him came out to the outskirts of the camp and beginning the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, he blew the trumpet and smashed the jars in their hands and the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars and, the, and they held in their hands and lifted their torches in the right hands and the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon and every man stood his place around the camp and all the army ran and they cried out and fled and they blew the 300 trumpets and the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army and the army fled as far as uh, Bethshita towards Zerah and as far as the border of Abel, Moleah and by Taba and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh and they pursued after Midian. This is crazy. And this shows us that the surprising power of this unique deliverance points us to the one true God who is genuinely glorious 
when we remember that God has different methods than we do of doing things, we commonly remember that things that are problems for us are not problems for him. But we also need to remember that things that seem like solutions to us are problems to God. Gideon has, has amassed quite the army. 32,000 men have come out ready to fight, highly motivated, ready for freedom. <clears throat> but this is a problem. God calls out Gideon and says, Gideon, we got a problem. Gideon's like, I know, we don't have enough people. Look at all those camels. They're like the sand of the seashore. I feel like I'm at the beach, but it's camels. And God goes, yeah, yeah, we, we have a problem. We just have too many people in our army. And Gideon's like, yeah, what? Too many people? Here we are. We're, there's this impending pillaging from the, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the New Englanders. That's the people of the east and their invasion. And we have this big army with let's go take them. We're done with this. And God says, ah, it's too many. Tell you what, just go tell anyone who's afraid, anyone who's not at the battle to leave. And two-thirds of the army leaves. And then he says, then go to the water. Let's see who drinks like a psycho and who drinks like a normal person. And they end up with that test with 300 people. God's like, yeah, now we got the right size. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because God gives a very clear reasoning. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. It is tragic when the people of God have confidence that they have delivered themselves. It is a scary thing when someone who's come to know the deliverance of God says, hey, look at everything I did. It makes you wonder if they really know the work that God did in their heart. It makes you wonder how could someone be so prideful and arrogant as to think they had a hand in their own deliverance. And the text highlights this gross mismatch between Gideon's forces. Gideon's impromptu army looked pretty good at first. If anything, it's like, hey, if we all go out and get a couple more friends, we could really do something here. <coughs> Excuse me. Instead, God wipes it down to 300 who are crazy enough to think they have a chance in this fight and somehow passed a water drinking test and meanwhile the Midianites are like locusts their camels are like the sea of the shore they cannot be numbered I think if God had given, or I think, not God, I think had one of us gone back in time with a stockpile of like AK-47s, just a boatload of ammo, and said, all right, 300 guys, these are called guns, we're going to show you how to use them, we train them proficiently, and they go in with machine guns and their own power, I think they still lose. There's that many Midianites. 
But the purpose is not to have a strategic victory. The purpose is not to show some sort of military prowess or cunning that the people of God are powerful enough to do it on their own. The whole purpose of this is to say only God can deliver you. Stop crying out to anyone else. The point is to say you serve a mighty God who uses his might for his worship and your good. God is very clear in verse 2 that he is not going to share credit for this deliverance with anyone. His glory and deliverance are genuinely and authentically unique. The whole point is that we would be mystified and amazed by God's glory and God's power here. It is deliberately made so no one can get a plaque of heroism. But that God alone would be worshipped. That God alone would be glorified. God is making a statement. You cried out to Baal and Asherah for how many years and they did absolutely nothing. This Gideon, the weakest of the weak, knocked over the poles and the altars and, and Baal wasn't able to defend against him. And I'm going to use him to wipe out this innumerable army. The people of God through all time as they hear the story should know that we should not settle for a counterfeit glory. I remember being a kid and going on trips to whether it be like New York City or an overseas mission trip and it was amazing the Oakleys that would go for sale for like 90, 100 bucks in Omaha, you could get Oakleys in, on the street for like five bucks. We always call them Folkleys. The fake Oakleys. They looked just the same. They looked cool. But they were just knockoffs. And idolatry is nothing more than, it, it's like folkly sunglasses. It's this knockoff. If I want to I feel like I'm worshiping something great, but I don't want to give my whole life to it. Or I'm going to give my whole life to something that seems to promise in quicker results, in quicker time, what I'm really looking for. And there's a lot of knockoff glories with flashy promises that will leave us flat every single time. Israel got themselves in this predicament going after a counterfeit glory. Don't give yourself to the ideologies and the leaders who promise aspects of the kingdom of God, whether it be prosperity or morality or unity or justice, without holding high the name of Jesus in word and deed. Let me say that again. Don't give yourself to ideologies and leaders that promise aspects of the kingdom of God without holding high the name of Jesus in word and deed. God doesn't share his glory. His glory, so we shouldn't settle for counterfeit, and we should realize that the glory of God is not, not replicable. At night, when I can't think of anything to watch, my wife and I are sitting on the couch, we can't think of what to watch, we don't have enough time for a whole show to get into a plot, we just put on Shark Tank. I love watching people come with all their life's work and dreams, lay it before four people who don't know them or love them, and just watch it get picked apart. It's really fun for me. Maybe I need to repent. 
But one of the things that comes out is when there's a really good product, one of the first questions they ask is, where's your competition? Who's knocking you off already? And the really good products aren't replicable. There's people trying, but they can't do what we do. There's a lot of forces and individuals trying to promise a glory and a deliverance similar to God's, and they can't do it. They can't produce what only God can do. And you can't produce with any other ingredients than faith and the power of God. You cannot reproduce his work with any ingredients other than those. We serve a mighty God, and his might is for his worship and for our good. And he is genuinely glorious, and he is generous and kind. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> that night, the Lord comes to Gideon, says, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down with Purah, your servant. So God's saying, all right, tonight's night, we're going to take him. But Gideon, if you're afraid, I want you to go down because I have a sign waiting for you if you go down. Notice verse 9 does not start. Gideon says, Lord, boy, I, I still don't know. If you've noticed, we have almost no soldiers left, and they have camels that are like locusts and sand on the seashore. Please give me another sign. That's how you expect verse 9 to start. But it starts with God going, hey, Gideon, tonight's the night. We're going to do this. If you're afraid, go on down, and I have a sign waiting for you. This, this tells us a couple of amazing things about the Lord. First of all, the first thing we see is Gideon doesn't ask. God instead patiently shows him a sign that he knows he needs. God knows the needs of Gideon and patiently walks with those needs. And we don't know if Gideon from the text, we don't know if Gideon now is filled with faith and just ready to move or if he's scared if the next question he asks is going to be too much. But he, he appears to be following the Lord. He does the whittling down of the army. He knows he has 300 guys left. C.S. Lewis describes a, a key point in his conversion story where he says, I had enough of my questions had been answered to know that the rest of my questions had answers that I just didn't know yet. And maybe Gideon's at a point like that, where he's had enough questions answered to know that there's, there's answers to the remaining questions he has. Either way, he doesn't ask, and God still gives a sign. God does a lot to give Gideon this assurance. He gives a, a guy to walk down to the camp with him. He sends a dream and an interpretation to the Midianites. And he gets those people in earshot of Gideon. And he's, he has spread fear throughout the Midianite camp. God has done a lot to give Gideon this sign and this assurance and to give his people deliverance from the Midianites. The second surprising thing is that God isn't sick of Gideon. 
Gideon, in, in the previous chapter, has asked more questions than a four-year-old stuck in a Y vortex. You know that moment where you're like, why is the sky blue? Because God made it that way. Why? I, I don't know. He likes blue. Why? I don't. Because green would be weird. Why? I don't know. And Gideon keeps coming with these questions. And God, in his generous kindness, after answering all those, after giving all that assurance, after doing the do and fleece thing two nights in a row, God now says, Gideon, I have one more sign for you. I know you haven't asked, but I have one more sign for you. God is working behind the scenes, reassuring this army and troubling his adversaries. And as we follow the Lord and face opposition, whether it's from our own flesh or, or from externally, sometimes it feels pretty overwhelming to follow the Lord. Are my sins really forgiven? Is this really happening? If I speak what I'm convinced is the truth, am I going to get shut down in every circle outside of my church? If I go to tell my neighbor about Christ, are we never going to talk again? If I call my loved one who's walking away from the Lord back to faith in Christ, is that going to ruin family Christmas? Am I going to lose them forever? If I speak for my faith, am I going to lose my job? If I mess up one more time, is God going to give up on me? We have a lot of questions. We don't always ask them, but we have a lot of questions. And God gives us a lot of assurance. In John 10, he says, I hold my sheep in my hand and no one can take them out. In Romans 8, he says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Romans 8 and Philippians 1.6, we know that God will finish his work in us, that he won't give up on us or our spiritual walk, and so we don't need to either because God will carry his work to completion. In Psalm 103, we know that our sin is separated from us as far as the east is from the west. In Isaiah 118, we know that though our sins were as scarlet, they will be white as, our hearts will be white as snow. And throughout the New Testament, we hear over and over again that the Lord has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, in fact, put his Holy Spirit in us and made us temples for his praise. God gives us a lot of assurance. We serve a mighty God who uses his might for his worship and our good. And he's generous and kind, and he's guaranteed faithful. So they get the trumpets, they get the jars, they go out, they have three groups of 100 around the camp, they blow their trumpets, they break their jars, they yell a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, the camp, pitch black, this is before the days of light pollution, goes into a complete stir. They're already worried that Gideon's going to overtake them. And they just start swinging their swords at anyone around them, ending up killing themselves and then running away. Everything says that this shouldn't have worked. Everything says this shouldn't have happened. The numbers, the supplies, everything is lopsided in favor of Midian. 
There's no good reason for this to work, at least no good earthly reason. But God's sovereign involvement changes everything. This is his land, after all. It's his promise to the people that they'll inherit it. It's their cries that fell on the Lord's ears. It's his calling to Gideon. It's his removal of false worship, whether that be Baal and Asherah or their own physical prowess. They're not able after this to say, wow, we really, we really took it to them. This is one of those battles that afterwards they're telling it. And I'm sure people were like, yeah, right. No way. 300 of you beat all those people? That's laughable. I mean, I'm sure some of them were laughed out of their own homes talking about the story. Yeah, I blew a trumpet, I broke a jar, and we won the battle. We have trumpets and jars, they have swords and camels, and sure enough, of course we're going to win. Their false worship of themselves is removed. He gives assurance to Gideon. And he keeps his word. I will give your enemies into your hand. I find, and this is an indictment on my own lack of faith, that there's times I see God do something and I get really, really amazed. And then a gentle brother or sister in Christ just comes up to me and goes, Well, what did you expect? Of course God did this. It's what God does. How many times? Maybe maybe you're going out to share your faith. You're like, I have no idea what to say. I I haven't taken like eight apologetics classes. I haven't watched the Truth Project in the last three weeks. I don't know what to say. And then we get through the conversation. We're like, wow, it's so weird. I'm talking to this person, and the Holy Spirit gave me the words to say, oh, like he said he would. And we see God do amazing things, and we're surprised, in the same way we're surprised that when we see lightning, and we're like, oh wow, that was bright lightning, and then we hear thunder, we're like, oh, that was big thunder. Oh, I should have seen it coming. So I I started talking about in January 2006, or December 2006, John John going to that worship service. Well, the next summer I was in Haiti. And we were doing a little VBS thing at a local church uh, nearby. And I was talking to a translator who had become a friend of mine, Daywold. And I'm talking to Daywold, and we're looking out uh, over this little valley. I said, it's just so amazing what God is doing here. He goes, yeah. And I go, I can't believe John John shared John 3.16 that one night. And now voodoo's like just kind of gone from the area. And Dewald just goes, what did you expect? God is more powerful than voodoo. What did you expect? And he he wasn't trying to say anything to me, but in my mind what I'm hearing is, oh, you of little faith. So many times as God works in our hearts, that we will look at the work God has done in our heart, we'll look at someone else's struggle, and we'll boil it down to, 
well, if they would just make good decisions like me. And we boast in ourselves. Or we see a challenge that feels insurmountable. I can never do that. And you're right. You never could. But with the Lord, all things are possible. With the Lord who never leaves you and forsakes you, all things are possible. And when those all things happen, let us never say, well, you know, I just right living, made good decisions. Let us always say, I have a mighty God who uses his might for his worship and for my good. And let us never boast in anything but the cross. For by it we are crucified to the world and the world to us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the unique work that only you are able to do. A unique deliverance that only you are able to bring about. Lord, help us to walk in greater confidence with you, knowing that you keep your word, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Lord, we praise you that you do this. We praise you that you are gentle and that you are generous and that you are glorious. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.